Welcome back to the Talking Stocks podcast. My name is Joe and I'm beside Todd Campbell on your screen and in your ears as always. Todd, happy Friday once again, going into a long weekend. It's been a been a pretty pretty nice week for the markets, if I do say so myself, and we have a jam-packed show for you listeners today. Yeah, I, I think strap ourselves in. <laughs> we'll try to blow through some of this stuff as fast as we can while still giving you some, some pretty good in-depth insight. But uh, Joe, I just thought to kick off the show, possible to introduce the new member of Team Limelight? <laughs> yes, this might be our new mascot. Um, this is Wallace, otherwise known as Wally, um, a 25-ish pound uh, golden retriever poodle puppy sitting on my lap here. Um, yeah, we might we might be incorporating him into our new logo. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. He's a he's a great mascot, and he's keeping me nice and warm on this chilly, rainy New England day. Yeah, he looks like a he looks like a handsome boy, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, he has you have some fun with him over the July Fourth, and hopefully, all of our listeners, hey, enjoy some good time with family and friends, and hopefully, a little bit more normalcy this year versus last year. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to seeing some fireworks this weekend. I don't know about you. So yeah, your, dog, your dog might not be so happy about that though, right? Yeah, yeah, we'll leave him at home. That's all right. There we go. Yeah, so we've got a jam-packed show for you guys today. We I had to write all this stuff down to make sure I wasn't going to forget something. So we're going to do some uh, some follow-ups. So we'll uh, we'll start with uh, Virgin Galactic. Then we'll um, we'll follow up on the two IPOs we talked about last week, uh, LegalZoom and Krispy Kreme. Uh, both of which are trading now. Um, then we're going to talk about another exciting upcoming IPO, Robinhood. Uh, long, long awaited, which will certainly be uh, in the news in the coming weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about a couple of individual healthcare stocks. Uh, then we'll touch on tech seasonality again, uh, just like we did Last week, uh, Todd has some informative charts from a couple of noteworthy stocks. And then from what I understand, we have quite the, quite the smattering lined up for the end of the show. So let's get into it. Todd, I'll let you take it away and talk about Virgin Galactic SPCE. Yeah, I thought it would be really helpful for all of our listeners because last week we talked a little bit about uh, Virgin Galactic and how it, you know, it soared skyrocketed last week and you know the big question was Todd are you gonna sell it because everybody knows that I like to sell verticals and just as a recap in case you missed last week's show I do tend to, to sell verticals but I like to sell verticals traditionally when they're breaking up to all-time highs and that wasn't necessarily the case last week with Virgin Galactic. Hindsight being 2020 Joe if I was you know, it's like capital, right? If I was like able to go back in time and like time all of my entries perfect, which listeners, you just, you can't do it. I mean, you have to make some some educated guesses on when you're going to trim and when you're going to add. Yeah, I sell that rally on when we were talking and I could have bought it back theoretically a few days later as it started to fill the gap. But I, I want to bring up my, um, my charts here, Joe, and just show people a little bit more. If you're, hey, listen, if you're following us on um, YouTube, thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's, there's no charge to follow us on YouTube. You can subscribe just by clicking the button to subscribe. You can hit the bell, smash the like, et cetera. It really helps us with Google's algorithm and helps we us. We passed 500 subscribers last week, by the way. Thank you all so much. We did, and hopefully they come even faster. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us every week on the show to talk, and thousands, thousands of you listening every week to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, etc. Just so appreciative of um, the support that you're showing the show. Anyways, for those of you on YouTube, I am displaying the chart. For those of you listening at home uh, or as you're driving, I'll try to explain it the best I can. So we were talking last week about how Virgin Galactic soared, jumped, much higher on the FAA news that it was uh, going to allow space tourists to be on their on their planes, the first such approval, if you will. Uh, this We talked a little bit about how there was a gap to fill. Sure enough, we did come down and yesterday uh, filled that gap. And then today, the stock opened up 20%, Joe, today because Branson, who everybody knows from Virgin, his um, various companies with that Virgin nameplate, uh, is going into he's going into space. He's going to be one of the first space tourists, and that's going to happen on July 11th. 
apparently, nine days before Bezos was planning to go up into space on his company's Blue Origin. Blue Origin is not publicly traded yet, so space is the only pure play, if you will, uh, SPC is the symbol there, on, on space tourism. We, did, we have come down off of those highs from earlier today, Joe. We're up about 4.6%. Uh, volume is pretty heavy, heavier than yesterday, which was the sell day that kind of filled that gap. So what am I doing now, listeners? I'm just, I'm just sitting still. I mean, this isn't, this, um, if we break out to all-time highs and we get a few different, you know, up days in a row where we are vertical, then yeah, I'll trim again and I'll, I'll rein it back into my exposure. Otherwise, I'm just going to let this thing sit and run, Joe, because, um, I think there's just, just going to be a lot of news flow. I suppose there is always the risk, though, and that's why you know position sizing is important, right, Joe? We don't want to take the risk of blowing up our portfolio on one bet. I mean, there is all, always the risk. God, hopefully, if this wouldn't happen, there is always the risk that something bad happens. Uh, anybody who was uh, around my age and kind of watching um, NASA launch um, the shuttle into space in the 80s, um, uh, tragically knows that. So um, just something to keep in mind, but no, my, my plan at this point, Joe, is just to, to let it run. All right. That's, that's a, that's a good segue, I think, into uh, the two IPOs we covered last week uh, that have been uh, almost as volatile. So I think, uh, I think Krispy Kreme symbol there, D-N-U-T, D-Nut, uh, is, has been the more interesting one to watch. Uh, LegalZoom has been has steadily risen. Uh, when started LegalZoom, I know started trading on Wednesday and has been just kind of steadily up since then. But uh, Krispy Kreme has been kind of all over the place now. It's it's turning into quite the roller coaster ride, Todd. Right? Yeah, and you know I, the swings, the bars on the intraday for uh, Krispy Kreme are just pretty insane. Um, it's down ten percent today. It's below its IPO price. Remember, eighty percent of stocks roughly uh, undercut their IPO day price um, within the first nine months, I believe it is. So it's it's not uncommon to happen. That's why you don't necessarily want to be the person who's buying. Once they IPO, if you can get allocated through your broker, that's a different story because usually the IPO price is, is a little bit more attractive. But if you have to buy in the open market, like most people do, then it usually oftentimes pays to wait. That wasn't the case with LegalZoom, though. LegalZoom is up now for the third day in a row, up another 3.5% today. IPO'd at $28, and today, Joe, trading around $40. I, I suspect we will see that sort of trend down, and I think we will get another opportunity to buy there. Uh, just to follow up, if you didn't listen to the show last week where we um, sort of dug into the S1s of those two companies, I did notice on Krispy Kremes that they are going to be paying down a, a fairly substantial amount of the debt because we were a little concerned about the interest expense there, Joe. Um, and you see Wallace walking off the, anyways, YouTube. He's yeah, like, I might be letting him out the door in a second. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, we are going to see it pay down a little bit of its uh, debt. So that should help its interest expense and, and maybe get it um, to a net profit a little bit quicker. We'll have to see. But yeah, LegalZoom so far, Joe, is the winner of this, uh, of this IPO battle, anyways. Yeah. All right. So speaking of IPOs, Robinhood, we've been waiting for this for, I, I've been hearing news, rumors of this for at least two years now, and it seems like it's finally happening. So we wanted to do a read through like we did uh, last week with those other two. So I'm going to share my screen here and I have their, their S1 up. Um, I scrolled through so many pages of just fluff like this that you can see of just like customer testimonials and all sorts of, you know, pretty stuff like that to get to the, the kind of meat and potatoes of this, of this form. It's longer, much longer than the other two we, we read last week. So um, probably some big disclosures there on litigation. Maybe. Oh my God. I, I can only imagine full, yeah. Full, speaking of disclosure, full disclosure, I have not read through this, Todd. I believe you have not either. So this is, this is all new to us. I have heard some, heard some, uh, some just general talk about how much money they're losing, uh, over the past year or so. And it's, it's frankly pretty staggering. So 
if you if you live under a rock, uh, Robin Hood is the is the new uh, the new kind of kid on the block as far as brokerages go. Um, you see here, their mission is to democratize finance for all. Um, you know, feel free to laugh at the irony of that if you want. <laughs> um, given the given the happenings over the past several months, uh, but basically the um, the plurality of traders on like Wall Street bets and similar forums are using Robinhood. They were the first commission-free brokerage. I started trading on their platform back in the day. As soon as all of the other big uh, brokerage firms, Fidelity, Ameritrade, Schwab, et cetera, went to free trades, I switched off literally that day. Uh, could not get out fast enough, uh, but that's just me. So anyway, let's get to the details. So I'm not really, I'm not really seeing a whole lot of interest on this first page. Well, you know, one of the things I think is is interesting there is that if you look at over over in under cultural impact, over half of eighteen to forty four year olds in the U.S. know who Robin Hood is. That's that's interesting. Yeah, brand recognition is uh, is an asset. Um, so <laughs> I guess the, there's no such thing as bad press argument comes. Is that true or not? Do they know it in a good way? Do they know it in a bad way? And then the other thing I think I see down further here is it says, as of the end of March on that second page, Joe, 18 million net cumulative accounts. Hmm. So that's, that's a lot of accounts. And they say that- Actually a lot less than I would have expected. Because I, I don't know I don't know about you, but like gen generally my my friends uh, colleagues my age you know people generally in the in my age group early to mid twenties most of the people that I know have an account on Robinhood so I I was actually expecting that to be like somewhere around I don't know thirty million so little surprising to me. Well, what's interesting there too, Joe, to your point, is if you look down in the third paragraph down, you'll see that our Robinhood Snacks newsletter and podcast had 32 million subscribers. So 32 million people subscribe to Robinhood Snacks, 18 million have a net cumulative funded account. So there is a, there's a little gap there between the people who are aware yeah. of Robinhood, the people who maybe are getting something from Robinhood delivered to their desktop or their smartphone, I should say, and uh, the people who actually put money in that brokerage account, but there is a lot of competition. I mean, we probably, I mean, we already talked about the standard regular people out there, E-Trade, Ameritrade, Fidelity, et cetera. Um, you know, E-Trade, this is basically the newer version. E-Trade was disrupting back in 2000 or whatever, and Robinhood dis is disrupting today, but there's, it's certainly not the only one disrupting, right? Because there's also Joe Weeble, right? And there's, yep. there's some of these others and they use kind of similar marketing tactics where they say, hey, tell your friend and we'll give you a free stock, right? Exactly. And it works. I, I referred people when I had an account. Well, actually, I still do have an account. It just doesn't have any money in it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an, it seems to be an effective tool. So we're just going to keep kind of pushing through here. Here we go. Here are some numbers. Uh, so 245% year-over-year revenue growth. Um, wow. Only 959 million. That's that's for the whole year too. I'm I'm surprised it's that low, given that they have 18 million accounts, active accounts. I guess you could say, uh, net income of seven million compared to the previous year, a loss of 107 million. Uh, safe to say they probably have some debt on their books. Uh, 155 million EBITDA compared to a negative 74 million the, the previous year. So a nice little turnaround from them. Uh, and then further down here, we have the most recent quarter ending at the end of March. Uh, still even bigger revenue growth, 309%. Wow. 522 million up from 128 million. So they're-, they're Look at that net loss though in the next line. Oh my God, that's- yeah, <laughs> that's that's a blowout loss right there. 1.4 billion in just a quarter. 
That included, they say, a $1.5 billion fair value adjustment to our convertible notes and warrant liability compared to a net loss of $53 million the year or yeah, the year prior, first quarter. So, so that's, that's a one time, that's theoretically a one time item. So it's really a hundred million dollar loss. Yeah. But when you think about 2020, they turned a profit in 2020 of 7 million. So is this litigation expense? I mean, they did get recently hit with a $70 million fine. Yeah. Um, just going back and take a look at my notes here. Yeah, FINRA, FINRA hit them with a $70 million penalty over outages and approving accounts for options trading that probably shouldn't have been approved for options trading. Yeah. So regulators have taken aim at it. And, you know, obviously that's, there's expenses associated with that. And maybe we're, st we're seeing some of that show up also probably in the preparations for the, the filing. There's some, maybe some expenses there. Yeah. Something to definitely track though, right? Yeah, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch. I'm certainly looking forward to to seeing this this company public just so we could kind of get an idea of like can they really continue to to make money? I'll be interested to see like what their litigation expenses are in in the in the upcoming quarters and the upcoming year. So yeah, certainly, certainly some uh, some trends to watch here. So um, then we kind of get into the the disclosures, and so they they're talking about here for those of you who are listening, uh, the the things that are kind of working favorably for them. Uh, so obviously, um, the the whole concept of stock trading is a lot more kind of digitized, digitalized than it was 10 years ago, five years ago, even one year ago. And so we can expect that trend to continue. I think that's a safe assumption. Uh, rise of FinTech, that's another huge aspect. Um, so anything jumping out here for you, Todd? No, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, if you think about Robinhood making it easy to trade, it is easy to trade. Now, back in the old days, it was easy to trade. Anybody who's got gray hair knows that you could just call up your broker and say, buy XYZ, the trader could execute, hang up the phone. It takes, you know, it's as simple as pressing a button to buy or sell, but you're just using your word saying buy XYZ, right? Yeah. And then you had, you know, kind of the, the rise of E-Trade and the discount brokers, which made that less likely because it's harder to call a broker to actually execute the trade. You actually had, a, had to have a PC uh, or a desktop or something, a laptop, something that was connected to the internet to be able to go on, log on, be able to execute the trade, which actually wasn't as seamless, but it was cheaper. So kind of started the pathway towards democratizing it to all retail investors. And now because of technology and the fact that you can have apps on your smartphone that you open with one button, type in a symbol and click buy with one button, we're kind of back to that ease of use thing. Um, so I think that that is interesting. You know, obviously they talk about, you know, how the average annual return of the stock market is is good, you know, up 9% per year, uh, traditionally. Uh, usually people model for a little bit less than that just to be on the conservative side for returns. And a lot of people obviously, you know, the, hey, you know what, the meme generation or whatever has attracted a lot of attention to the importance of investing. I think this is a way more common conversation within, you know, people around your age, Joe, Absolutely. it would have been a decade or two decades ago. Yeah. Check out this, check out this first line on the next page here. 60% of all Americans still don't have investments outside of their retirement accounts. And 68% of young adults age 18 to 29 have no money invested in the stock market at all. So I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that Robinhood's target market is generally younger people. So there's a there's a big opportunity for for growth here for them. The one I guess from a from a potential investor standpoint, the concern I have with that is they don't have the competitive advantage that they had three years ago or four years ago when I first opened an account with them because there's there's nothing preventing someone from just opening an account with Fidelity or with E-Trade or you name the brokerage, doesn't matter now, they're all free. But the only reason why, why I signed up for Robinhood, I'll say it again, is 
because of the no fees. So yeah, there are a lot of people out there who are who still have accounts so that they can trade options, but there are that's not a majority for sure. Most I people feel- just don't have the don't have the expertise, don't have the time to trade options. They're just gonna they're just gonna buy and hold like the rest of us. Yeah, and options, as you know, anybody who's listened to our show more than once, whew, options are scary, scary, scary because yeah. of time value decay. And um, it's a fast way to the poorhouse in many, in many respects. Trust me, I, I know I suffered the consequences of being an options investor early on in my investing career back in the late 90s during the internet boom and lost my shirt in the internet bust. You know, the two things that I continually pound the table on in the show is that, you know, margin and options, yeah, they're great when the market's good, but oh my God, you know, the market will fall way faster than it increases and you can get absolutely run over in them. I think one of the things I've joked in the past before about Joe is that will we ever see in my lifetime negative commission rates? Maybe. maybe. That's an that's an interesting question. Negative commission rates. So can you just kind of like explain how that would, how that would work? How Right. How we would so, end up with a negative commission, right? Yeah, let's begin with a question, Joe. How does Robinhood make its money if it's not charging you fees on commissions on your on your transactions? It's from what I hear, it's a little bit it's a little bit wonky. They like they make their money through like the spread on um, ask versus bid. I think I got that right. So yeah, it's order flow. I mean, they're getting paid for order flow by. Yeah you know, large middlemen um, who are taking that order flow and profiting from it in in various ways, either on the spread and changes to the spread. So maybe you're not getting the best allocated price possible um, that maybe you would otherwise, or they're to some extent, for lack of a better term, apologize because this is a legal, legal issue, but you know, some sort of front running of it where they're taking an aggregate of all of this information and they're coming to some conclusions about what could happen to the stock prices and maybe trading out ahead of it. So they're getting some money um, from these third parties. So make yeah. no mistake, this is a for-profit business, right? They made $7 of million course. a year last year. They did a billion dollars in revenue. So somebody was paying them a billion dollars in revenue last year for access to the order flow that's going across that platform. Yep. So think about it this way now, Joe. So you're saying to yourself, okay, someone is paying for access to that. How do you make sure that you're able to have enough order flow for people to want to continue to pay for that or to pay um, more for it? and to provide you with revenue growth over time. Well, you have to incentivize people to use your platform. Yep. So if we're at free commissions now, how else do you incentivize? I suppose you could incentivize through free giveaway of shares of stock, which they do in the referral program, uh, which I suppose you could argue is a form of, of negative commission. It's not negative commission, but it is, you know, a value that you get for using the platform. So I just, I'm thinking about it out loud in my head and saying, well, you know, if each individual is given a penny negative commission rate, but they can somehow monetize that at a penny and a half, um, then then maybe that's the direction that we're going to head. Because like you said, what's the differentiator here now between Webull, Robinhood, E-Trade, Fidelity, anybody right. retrading? Absolutely. And I, w- I would encourage everybody watching and listening to look up or some sort of article or video they're all over the internet of just just to get it get yourself an idea before you go to an invest in Robinhood. just watch a video on how they make money because they're explaining it in a much better way than we are um and it's it's a it's a really interesting process and it'll it, it's really important that you know how they make money and how that might change. So one last thing that I want to add here, and this is one of the one of the reasons why I will not invest in Robinhood, um, besides, of course, all of their legal ethical issues over the past several months. But the the one thing I remember when I had a Robinhood account is you go to buy a stock and say the stock was trading at $29.50. You you hit the hit the order button and your trade would execute, you know, 
immediately, more or less, in a few seconds. But you'd end up getting it at like $29.53 or something like that. So that's kind of like how they make their money going back to like the, the spread that we that we mentioned before. But it ends up like the 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 consumer, the account holder, the shareholder ends up kind of footing that. And sure, at the end of the day, if you're if you're buying a, a $29 stock and it's a growth stock, you probably don't care about three cents. But at the same time, that's like going to going to the grocery store and buying something for two dollars and 95 cents and you get to the register and they say your total is three dollars and five cents please to me it's a little it's it's a little sketchy i take that analogy another way too joe and just think of okay if you don't know what the product is you're paying for right if you don't if you're not paying for for whatever product or service you're using so look at facebook right well, how is Facebook mo making money, right? It's a for-profit business. Well, it's selling your information, your use of it to some other third party. I'm fine with that, right? I don't care. I'm using this platform, whatever it happens to be. I'm on Twitter all the time, right? Yep. I love the value I get out of Twitter. I don't pay anything for it, but you can tell, you know, they monetize me and everybody else who's on Twitter, right? And Robinhood's kind of the same way. I mean, you're going to get monetized one way or another. These are for-profit businesses, right? They're not That's right. So they are your eyes wide open, as Joe said. They have to they have to make money somehow. You know, Facebook is Facebook is free for you to use, but they will shove ads in your face as as often as they can. Say goodbye to Wallace, everybody. Hi, Wallace. <laughs> um, Wallace yes. has left the building. Say, Wallace has left the building. There's our there's our new mascot, everybody. Um, the so, last thing before we jump, Joe, because I know you're, I can feel you, I can feel you getting to the point where you're going to ready to do a jump and a slash pivot. Uh, I just want to also just throw out there that Robinhood is making 35% of the shares, it looks like, uh, available to people who are on Robinhood's platform. So yep. that is, that is a, in, an interesting incentive for those of you who do want to own Robinhood shares. I don't know the exact day that they're going to start trading do you show like that has not yeah. been announced yet uh, to my knowledge and um, i don't know if you have to be a share, uh, on the platform by a particular date so you might you know if you're thinking about it and you want to get allocated at the ipo price and you want to try you could always you know try that way but i, I did think it was interesting that they mm -hmm. were doing it that way and at least carving some shares out for for their own supporters people who are using the platform yeah, I think that'll I think that'll that'll work out very very well for for Robinhood as as a company and their bottom line. So let's pivot now. It's time to talk healthcare. We have two specific healthcare stocks we want to bring up. Um, so Todd, take take your pick, whichever one you want to bring up first. Well, there's two stocks. One of them is high scoring in the research uh, right now, which is Novacure, which is getting beat up the last two days. And I just, I thought it would be important for investors to just sort of like go over some of this latest news, my interpretation of it. Novacure, uh, which we've talked about on the show before, Joe, um, I don't know how comfortable you are talking about tumor treating fields, TTFs, the product that they use. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I'll I'll give another another quick rundown for those of you who haven't haven't heard that episode, and I'll I'll try to find that too and and link to it. Uh, but yeah, essentially what what they do is they're they're not a they're they're not a, a, a drug manufacturer. They're not they're not uh, you know giving out some super expensive pill for somebody to take to treat their cancer. Um, so they, they deal with solid tumor cancers. So the kind of like classic, you know, you see a, a mass on a, on a scan, whether it's a, a brain scan or a, a CAT scan or an MRI or something like that, you know, the classic, there's a mass here. What is this? It's a tumor. So basically what they do is instead of manufacturing a very expensive pill, they manufacture a very expensive device. Um, and essentially what they are, they're these little ceramic discs that all um, in like, an, they call it an array. So think of it, it's like laid out kind of like a, a, a six pack or something like that, or a 12 pack. 
and they stick onto either your your head if you have a, a glioblastoma, which is a, a frontal kind of frontal lobe tumor. So think of like the basically where where you can see my hat here. Um, and then also they have a newer indication for mesothelioma, which if you ever watch TV, you generally know what it is. Um, but it's a it's a, a lung cancer. So again, these arrays would be like on your on your chest, kind of like this. And sparing the uh, scientific details that frankly I don't understand because I'm a, I'm I have a business degree. Um, they essentially send like electric pulses to these tumors and it's it's just to make this abundantly clear it's not a cure it's considered a uh, they call it a life sustaining treatment so it's not a life saving treatment and so essentially it's they they tread on this fine line where essentially it's marketed that the tumors won't necessarily shrink but they won't grow. And so if somebody has a, a time, a very bad prognosis, I mean, anybody who's using one of these has a terrible, just really tragic prognosis. It's like a few months, but that might be able to get extended to six months from three months if, if, they're, if they're using these tumor treating fields. So that got a little long-winded, but Essentially, that's that's what that's what they do in layman's terms. Uh, we talked about this about this stock a few months ago when you see that huge vertical movement up into the two twenty range uh, when they when they had some very uh, positive news from one of their trials. And here we go with another vertical move in the other direction from some not so positive news in one of their trials. Right, Todd. Right. And I like to just, you know, if people are still kind of confused and trying to figure out how this works. I like to think of it like tuning a radio. They were able to figure out what frequency can prevent cell division in cancer cells. So they tune these things specifically to that. Then they design the arrays for each individual person so that it's targeting those tumors and trying to slow the growth or whatever by interrupting the frequencies for cell division. Anyways, so yeah, so Novacure, you're looking at this and back here, Joe, I've got the chart up for people who are listening on Spotify or other one of the other um, podcast services. And yeah, we went skyrocketed, right? We went from, uh, where is this? This is like around 132. 130, yeah. 20. Yeah, on news that, you know, they had some some pretty good interim data in non-small cell lung cancer, uh, which of course is one of the biggest killer killing cancers out there, and um, you know obviously would be a huge market for them because they'd be moving from glioblastoma, glioblastoma, which is pretty small market, uh, to non-small lung cancer theoretically if the pivotal trial ends up uh, panning out. The most recent news was disappointing, quote unquote, uh, because it wasn't as much of a slam dunk that it works well in liver cancer. And as you can see, I pulled up the data here on the Seeking Alpha's website, just showing you the summary of what they said. In 21 evaluable patients, the disease control rate was 76%. That sounds pretty good, right? Um, when you got dove deeper into it and you look at the objective response rates, uh, the ejector response rates, I think, were in the, the teens for the stock, uh, which was better than the old standard of care, which is this drug sorafenib, right? But not quite as good as the new standard of care as of, I think, last year was proved the use of Avastin and Tocentric in conjunction into advanced uh, liver cancer. Um, so I think that, you know, that people were looking at that and saying, okay, the, the, the response rate disease control rate is better um, than this prior standard of care and the ORR is better than in the prior standard of care. But if you really want to move the needle in sales for this company, it's going to have to improve upon the abstinence-centric combo. So I think what you're going to see in phase three is you're going to see an arm of that study combining with these immunotherapies to see if it can improve upon that. So if it does improve upon that, then I think that this is still, this in this indication is still a potential source of revenue for the company. Uh, but I think that that's kind of where people were looking at it. They were saying, okay, yeah, but is this really enough to move the needle and, and get this thing used as an adjunct? Because really, I get to your point, it's not a cure. You use it on top of other standard of care to improve the outcome. And if you can improve the outcome, well, that's, that's 
darn good, especially when you're talking about tough to treat indications. The other thing uh, I would just say about this, this indication is that you talked about prognosis. Yes, the people who, with the, if you have advanced liver cancer and it is in uh, later stages, you don't have a lot of treatment options. And sadly, the five-year survival rate for these patients, um, if it's late stage cancer is, is close to single digits, if not single digit percentages. So there is a huge need, unmet need for new treatment options in this. So yes, um, not slam dunk numbers in liver. Uh, I still think the opportunity non-small lung cancer is way bigger than it would ever be in liver. So I'm more interested in that. I am long the stock, full disclosure. So I am talking my book. Um, I think my cost is around 90, currently trading at 180, something like that. Um, and I'm just going to stick it out because, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot more news coming. Some will, go, will be good, some will, will be bad. Um, and, you know, I'm just going to ride it out because I do think that uh, it does have something that's very unique in the marketplace for addressing um, these very tough to treat cancers. Yeah. And just to kind of close this out, it's important to, important to keep in mind that they have several clinical trials ongoing. Uh, I believe the other two that we have not mentioned are uh, pancreatic cancer, I think. And, oh, we did mention liver cancer. So just, just one other. So non-small cell lung cancer, obviously huge market. Liver cancer, pretty big market. Uh, pancreatic cancer, huge market. Um, if I recall correctly, there might be one for colon cancer as well, which is another huge one. So it's, I think there's, I agree with you, Todd, there's a lot more upside than downside for this. And it's just, just one of those, cause it's, you know, it's a, a kind of, I guess it's not biotech, but still it falls into the, into the, the healthcare field where they have to get a lot of a lot of FTA approval and scrutiny, there are going to be some, some kind of kinks that need to get worked out and that'll result in probably some more of these vertical price movements one way or another. But yeah. I think the, I think the, the growth trajectory and the potential of this company is pretty, pretty huge. Yeah. And I think that the, what you were saying there is kind of a really good kind of segue into talking briefly about Intellia Therapeutics symbol. There is NTLA for people who are interested. If you're already been following at CRISPR-Cas9, the, the concept of editing your genes to be able to improve or uh, I guess stop disease, you know, dead in its track, genetic disease, in this track, just Google CRISPR-Cas9 and read about it. its fascinating approach where basically you could go in and use natural um, scissors to make edits to your malfunctioning DNA, if you will, to, you know, improve or, or reduce, you know, the protein production that's causing the problem, right? And we did get some news this week from Intellia saying that, okay, yeah, in an interim study uh, for a pretty rare disease that, you know, is hereditary and gene-based, they were able to edit a gene in the liver um, to be able to theoretically have a therapeutic benefit. And I think that's huge. It's huge for the mechanism of action for CRISPR-Cas9. Um, but I think the investors should recognize too that yes, there's promise in gene editing. This is an early stage study. Um, this is a re relatively rare indication. There will be times where gene editing is not ideal, uh, where you'd be better off maybe with something that's um, less likely to permanently knock out the activity of gene by doing some editing. Um, so I think that there, there are, and, and there are, there's plenty of opportunity here for failure still within this class too. So I would just, I would caution, I would, it's exciting. I think it's, it's very exciting, but exciting doesn't necessarily mean that all of the stocks that are involved in CRISPR-Cas9 are going to go to the moon. I mean, if you look at just CAR-T, uh, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, which was huge in mid-2015, 2017, you had Kite and Juno and Bluebird. Well, Kite and Juno ended up getting bought out, but um, Bluebird stayed publicly traded, and that stock is nosedive. Um, relative to what it was trading at in, in the mid, maybe 2016, 2017 timeframe. So just recognize that scientific discovery sometimes is uneven. <laughs> there are some, some, some wins and some losses within clinical trials. Um, and uh, just make sure that your exposure to the basket um, takes into consideration the risk that is still inherent within this evolving uh, new mechanism of, of targeting disease. Yeah. All right. So I think 
because this is this is going to be a very drawn out show. I think we should I think we should pivot uh, and touch again on uh, seasonality. So we just started July. Here we are, July second. So we are into into Q three now, um, which is usually, especially um, the month of July, is usually a pretty huge month for tech. So we mentioned this last week on the show. We want to give a couple of uh, more specific, tangible examples with some charts that Todd shared on Twitter yesterday. So take it away. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the my screen that I've got displayed right now, and listeners, I'll try to, to walk you through it best I can. But you can see in looking at the screen, this one chart that I'm highlighting in the middle here is the QQQ, which is very tech heavy. And it's tech heavy, and that is comparing the excess return to the S&P 500, the SPY. And you can see of all the months of the year since 2007, July is has the best history of, of generating the best excess return relative to the S&P 500 out of all the other 12 months. Um, and if you look at data from uh, the Stock Traders Almanac, which crunches this data for going back decades and decades, Post-election year Julys are particularly strong, and one of the better better months for for that. So I think that there is there's reason to think that although summers are typically associated with doldrums, there's reason to think okay, yeah, I will still maintain some exposure to technology stocks. And you can see here in July, just looking at the average monthly returns, this chart to the right here again, April and July, the first two months of Q2 and Q3 respectively are typically the best. I also wanted to highlight a couple stocks that I put up on Twitter here. And you can see that I've got some data here on Google. Uh, G-O-O-G is the symbol there. And you can see again, the spike in July, seasonality by month, if you're looking at my screen. You can follow me on Twitter at EB Capital. Link uh, below. Yeah, link below to, to get to, to that. And you can see here again, this is a waterfall chart just showing that you know July is typically the best month. And Google actually has very strong Q3 seasonality, up nine of the last 10 years, Joe. That's so impressive. I mean, yeah. I mean, should can it go down? Absolutely. But you know, again, we're looking for tendencies or probabilities in seasonality. Uh, and the median return, 6.3% in the quarter and an average return of 9% in the quarter. And again, those are front end loaded historically with July being the biggest month. And then the other stock I wanted to mention uh, in, in technology for seasonality was Apple. Symbol there is AAPL. And again, you know, nothing says that this stock won't trade lower, but tendencies and probabilities suggest that it will trade higher. You can see July and August are very strong historically for the company over the last decade, uh, with it being the two best months on av for average returns. And you can see overall for the third quarter, again, up nine of the past 10 years for a median return, Joe, of 14.2%, 14.1%, sorry. That's, that's pretty darn good, a double digit return in the quarter um, for on both median and an average basis. So I think that, you know, the, the takeaway there is that you do have some strong seasonal tailwinds. You can also look at the XLK, um, you know, on our, our ETF seasonality that we do. Um, the XLK has solid seasonality as well for the quarter. It's up eight of the last 10 years for an average return of 2.8%. The QQQ, as I mentioned, median return of 6.5% in um in the third quarter. So if you want to take a basket approach, you could just simply do the ETFs. If you want to look at individual stocks, maybe consider a name like Apple or Google, which tend to have very strong historical seasonal trends. Yeah, the one thing I'll, I'll just add to that as we, as we close this out. So we uh, released the best by sector list last week, or last week, excuse me, yesterday. <laughs> yeah, last week as well, I suppose. Time flies. Um, yes, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, and tech made a huge jump as we as we kind of expected uh was middle of the pack last week and i believe was second highest uh as of yesterday so just kind of not not to say i told you so but we we we, we did tell you so 
<laughs> um, it did, did improve a little bit more in the ranking, and uh, that's great to see. So we'll see whether or not this continues to, to play out. Uh, nothing to prove that it will, but I mean, you know, hey, I, th I think that it certainly makes sense to keep your money in at least. And the other thing I would just end on too is that when we're talking about the seasonality in July being strong, you could even narrow down even more, Joe, and you can say, okay, it is front end loaded in July. So the first half of July versus the second half of July tends to be a little bit better than, uh, so the first half tends to be better than the second half in July. Yep. All right. So all that we have left, all that I have left on my long list of topics is our smattering for the week. So Todd, you said this is a, this is a pretty extensive one. Is this going to be like a, a lightning round? What are we, what are we getting into here? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to try and lightning round it a little bit. I'm going to eliminate some names off of it, but I'll have them up on my Twitter feed or, or something else so that people can see some of these ideas that we're talking about. <laughs> if you stuck around this long, thank you. Yes. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, smash the like um, down below to, to make sure that you, you know, we, we know that you, you're, you're listening, you're paying attention. Hopefully there's still a few of you out there. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and um, we can go through some of these stocks um, and see, you know, where they are. These are all, again, high scoring stocks in the research right now. They have technical setups that I think are attractive and could portend good things to come. So first up here is Inviva Partners and the symbol there is EVA and they supply utility grade wood pellets to major power generator located in Northern Europe. And you can see over on the left-hand side here, I'm showing the earnings progression, $1.09 in 2020, expected to grow to $1.30 in 21, and to $2.21 in 2022. And at the end of March 31 quarter, revenue up 18% to $241 million. And then you can see on the chart, we're bumping our head right up against the February and March highs where we had double top failure and kind of retreated back down and formed a channel. If we can clear this pivot, so if we can close above 54, I would buy the next down day in EVA. Next stop, Visa. Visa has excellent seasonality, up eight or nine of the past 10 years in the third quarter. Uh, we're expected to see revenue, uh, earnings growth of 12% in 2021 and 26% in 2022. And similar to the last chart that we looked at, you're bumping up against the prior high, 238 in this case in May, kind of flirting with that 238 right now. And you can see, because I have the technicals allowed on the market Smith chart, you can see we're almost in it. We're kind of in that pivot zone right now. I think you can probably go ahead and grab this stock right here um, and just ride it out and we'll see if, we, if it indeed does head higher. So Visa, V would be that, the second stock in the list. Middleby or Middleby, I don't know, Middleby. They make ovens. Uh, ovens used in restaurants, ovens used in high-end homes, 58% bottom line growth expected in 2021 to 783 a share, 13% EPS growth expected in 22. 12% revenue growth in the March quarter. This one's a little bit in no man's land as far as the channel is concerned technically, but really there's just no incentive to sell. You haven't had above average sell day since the end of May. Um, and you know, I'm looking at this and thinking to myself, Joe, if people are going back to restaurants, those restaurants that are survived or whatever, maybe they have some extra money left over from PPP, whatever. And they're gonna go out and maybe they're gonna upgrade um, some of these restaurants or maybe some of the restaurants that are closed. People come back, take over those shops, reopen them and they get new equipment. So that's a stock that I happen to, to find attractive right now as well. Lowe's, most people like to go to uh, Lowe's and Home Depot and the like during summer to do some of these DIY projects, they get a little extra money in their pockets, okay? 24% bottom line growth expected in fiscal 2022, 24% revenue growth in the most recent quarter. And I like the fact that it's sitting right above that 50 day moving average, Joe, and the 21 day moving average is curling up. My guess here would be that it has you know, an equal shot jumping back towards that 215 price point. Solid seasonality in the quarter. I think I have up eight or nine of the last um, 10 uh, third quarter. So Lowe's is a stock that I am very interested in. Duluth Holdings, D-L-T-H. This is interesting. I don't own this personally. Um, is this like I Duluth Trading Company? 
Yeah, Marcus Clothing Tools, okay. accessories, contractors, serious do-it-yourselfers, DuluthTrading.com. Revenue up 21% in the April fiscal quarter ending April 30th. Uh, EPS expected to grow 67% in fiscal 22 to 70 cents and another 43% in fiscal 23 to a dollar. Trading at $19.50 now. And Joe, I really do like this setup where they break out of this big, big long base breakout. Now we're pulling back on lighter volume. I think I'm probably going to step up and pick up some of this somewhere in the high 1800s, eight, sorry, $18 range, maybe 1870. Maybe it travels below 19. I'll pick it up. So DLTH is an interesting stock to consider there. Uh, I don't want to get too long in the tooth here, but I do want to show a couple more. So I'm just going to punch up Shoe Carnival, SCVL. Uh, you did have some high, above average volume of sell days on Shoe Carnival, uh, but you also had above average buy days. And the sell, last two sell days were lower volume than those buy days. I think if it turns up from here, this one could head higher. So I also would put that on the list, S. CVL again as a symbol there. NXPI in the semiconductor space, Netherlands bit provider of mixed single and analog power management chips, revenue up 27% in the March quarter to 2.6 billion. We're looking at pretty substantial revenue uh, earnings growth in 2022, expect to earn $10.61, where last year uh, EPS was only about 18 cents a share. They get about 44% of their um, revenue from automotive. So if we assume that, you know, automotive sales are going to rebound, production is going to rebound as chips become more available, then NXPI should benefit from that. And then I guess I'll just, I'll just wrap it up here with one more, which is digital turbine. And you can see digital turbine is trading down 9% today, right? This is a stock I happen to be long. I'm up pretty nice on it. I think my cost is somewhere in the I don't know, 30s or 40s, something like that. Uh, earnings per share is expected to double in 2022 to $1.50, go up another 47% in 2023, and revenue last quarter up 142% to $95 million. And, you know, just they, what they do is they help with uh, app discovery. So they monetize apps and the, uh, the discovery of apps on smartphones. And they are now actually, they've acquired some other um, advertising platforms, allowing them to do buy and sell and, and be, kind of be in the middle of a lot of the advertising revenue associated with mobile and 5G adoption. So I think APPS is intriguing, especially since it's down 9% today. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the smattering and uh, a long show today, Joe. <laughs> Yeah, I just I just counted that was that was eight stocks. So those are those are eight of our best for the week. Um, and I think that is going to do it for today. So Todd, unless you have any last words besides obviously happy happy Fourth of July to everybody. Um, hope everyone has a has a wonderful holiday weekend and can get out and and enjoy some of the things that that we didn't have the opportunity to do in 2020. So uh, with that, we, we wish you all well, and we'll talk to you next week. See you guys.